Well, this morning, uh, I'd ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking at one verse we read last week, but comes at the end of the quote in Peter's sermon from the prophet Joel. It's verse 21. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give us faith to hear the word, your word to us, Father. We pray that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Lord, and give us hearts that are soft. Be with me now. We pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't want to miss that. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is our text today. This is what I want to spend the morning looking at, and what a powerful verse this is. What a beautiful promise. God promises that He will save everyone, everyone who calls on Him. Working with the the youth of this church, what's continually on my mind are the souls of the young people here. I have a special love for the youth of this church. I love everyone, but especially the youth and your children. I've joked with some of you that I feel like my life of ministry is peaking in the beginning. I, I can't imagine a more profitable or rewarding way to serve the church, and so I'll do it in this way as long as you'll have me, but I love it. I'm happy. And so what's often on my mind in this work is our children and the future generations of this church. Will they remain faithful to God? You know, I think about this, having grown up in this church myself and now working with younger people. I remember I've, I've pulled up pictures of my time in youth group, my, my class and grade, and it sounds depressing, but I look at these photos and maybe at up to 50% of the young men and women I went through in youth group in my class aren't here anymore. It's sort of striking, you know, when you look back and some of them, many of them, not even following the Lord. And so that's on my mind. I, I look at you and I, oh, I wonder the same thing. Will you remain faithful? Will you follow in the paths of your parents of late? Will you turn to God? Will you go beyond and do greater things? And really, that's my hope. That should be our hope. Not that they'll live as the first generations of the church, but they'll do greater things. So these things are on my mind, and my hope and prayer is to see And the goal of this church is to see our children go beyond us. And I know that's many of yours. And so preparing for this sermon, coming to this verse and reading that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The simplicity of this verse struck me. The call to us from this verse. Call to the Lord and you'll be saved. It's simple. It's a command. It's a promise. There's a blessing. Call out to God. Everyone who calls them will be saved. Now, how does this fit in with our Reformed theology? Not super well, <laughs> right? But I want to… The Word of God makes it abundantly clear that we must respond to God's work and call in our lives. We must. And so, knock and the door will be opened. Seek and you will find. God 
is a rewarder of those who seek him. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We must go to God. We must respond to him. So considering this verse in depth today, in particular, I want to talk to the young of this church, and I want to talk to your parents, to the parents, and thinking about the next generation of this, of this church. And if this church is to continue to remain faithful, it must be filled with men and women who call on the Lord to be saved. This has to be the nature of our church. And all the work that goes on here, and all the work of training here and even in our homes as parents, the promise of this verse must be latched onto more than anything else. If we fail to call on God's name for salvation, we've gained nothing. If we don't simply see the truth of this passage, if we don't lead our children to God, pointing to Him, calling them to go to Him for salvation, we've given them nothing. This verse is a familiar one for most of you, I'm sure. It's a popular verse. And familiarity with the things of God is a good thing. It's a blessing. Knowing the Word of God is good, although a blessing, we need to be aware of the danger there can be with the familiarity of God. Verses like this, when we come across them, verses like John 3.16, how often do you stop when you see that verse held up on college, get, what's the, the sports shows? You know, you always see it at a stadium. Do you stop and ponder, whoa, the power of that verse? Familiarity with Scripture can be a hindrance if our understanding of the depth and the truth of Scripture is lost. And so we need to be careful. With this verse, we need to reiterate the same warning. The truth it conveys is, yes, in some respects, simple, and yet we cannot afford to miss its power and truth in our lives and the power and truth in our families' lives, in our children's lives. So I want to back up for a moment and consider the context of this verse and, and where we are in Acts in the terms of the history of the church. This sermon given by Peter is at the beginning of new revelations from God to the church during this time and all throughout the book of Acts and really through most of the New Testament. God in his goodness, as we will see revealed as we go through Acts, is grafting in the Gentiles, bringing them into the family of God. And so if we were to go all the way back to the promise given to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through his line and that the family of God uh, was promised to Abraham. And this promise was primarily was contained and it was for the biological descendants of Abraham, the Jews. Now, of course, there were others, and we have examples in Scripture who were grafted in, but the promise was first and foremost to Abraham's children. And so as we progress through the Old Testament, we're going to run through it in two minutes. <laughs> Before the coming of Christ, we learn and we see over time that overall, Israel is not faithful to God. Israel turns from God repeatedly. God shows mercy upon mercy over and over. His love for them is great, and yet they continue to reject his kindness for them, to them. God proclaims by the way of the prophets that a day will come when his spirit will be poured out on all those who call on him, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile of the house of God or a foreigner. God is no longer going to show 
preference to the Jews, but all men who call on him will come to him and he will save. And so this is what's unfolding in the pages of Acts. This is where the promise that Peter brings here in our passage comes from and why he gives it. What is unfolding in the pages of Acts is a colossal shift in the tectonic plates of the church, of the family of God. The Jews are no longer the only ones with a special access to God, but God's Spirit is going out. And so thinking about this in the macro from a a bird's-eye view perspective, it's important that we heed the warning of the failure of the Jewish people to recognize the Christ as their Messiah. They had all the special privileges of the people of God. They had the promises, they had the oracles, they had the prophets, they were sent to them, they had the temple, the worship of God, the sacrifices, the spoken and written word of God, dreams and visions, and yet they failed to see what was evident and clear. Though they had the blessing upon blessing, though they had privilege upon privilege, they failed to see God's salvation given to them through the person of Jesus Christ. There was great advantage in being a Jew. We need to remember that. And yet, them failing to recognize Christ, all the blessings that they had did in fact become a curse because they did not call on the Lord and Savior for salvation. And here, I didn't read it, but Peter is tying this to Jesus. Those who call on Jesus' name will be saved. He goes there in the next verse. And so the blessing became a curse. They knew the truth, yet their hearts were hardened. So sitting here some 2,000 years later considering this, considering what's unfolding here in Acts, we need to consider ourselves. God has grafted us in as Gentiles. You and I, this church, are beneficiaries of the blessings of God, the blessings spoken to Abraham. Though we're not biologically descended, we are spiritually. Those of you who are a part of the of second and maybe third generations of Christian families, you must especially care, be careful to listen and see this warning. You've been given many spiritual blessings like the Jews, many things that truly are gifts and that they're real benefits that come from being in a family that loves God and from being in a church, being a member of a church that loves God. However, like the Jews had, their participation in the things of God can become a curse. Having these things, having blessings, can become a curse to you if you do not come to call on the name of the Lord personally, yourself, for salvation. All the blessings that you may have, if you reject them, it will be a greater curse than if you never had them. This is what happened with the Jews. This is what may happen, what could happen if, we don't, if we're not careful. And so this morning, I want to encourage you not to confuse familiarity with God as a love for God. Like this verse, familiarity can also be a trap. Do not confuse a knowledge of Scripture with a love for Scripture. Do not confuse a life free from scandalous sin as a life free from the love of sin. The Jews had every privilege and every access to God, and they failed to turn to God. They failed to call on Him as Savior. They missed the most fundamental and important. (laughs) They missed Christ. 
who was sent to them. So the question that I am asking you today, everyone, especially the young, have you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? Have you called out to God to save you? And I'm not asking you, do you read your Bible? Do you attend church? Do you attend small group, youth group? Have you called on the name of the Lord for salvation? You know, have you called on God like Elijah did? You know, I was looking, a lot of examples in Scripture of men, women that called on the name of the Lord. You go to Elijah. Remember, Elijah faced off with 450 prophets of Baal, right? Before the whole nation of Israel, the king. And Ahab says, all right, enough. Stop hesitating. Is Baal your God or is the Lord your God? Let's have a little test. (laughs) You build your altar, I'll build mine. And you call on your God, and I'll call on the Lord. And whoever answers with fire, he is the Lord. So Elijah is putting it all out there. Elijah is putting his stake in with the Lord in front of the nation publicly, risking it all to see God's name glorified. Of course, God answers with fire. And they proceed to put to death the prophets of Baal. Have you called on the Lord like this? You say, God, you are Lord, show it. Show me. Let there be no doubt in my mind, in anyone's mind, that you are the Lord of my life. And if not, let me die. (laughs) You realize Elijah would have been put to death if God did not answer with fire the way he put the prophets of Baal to death. He put his life on it. You, our Lord, answer me. Remember, he says, answer me, answer me. This was a man that called on the name of the Lord. The promise in this passage must be believed by you like it is by Elijah. You must do so. And considering the work of raging generations, speaking to you parents, your primary and most important role in raising your children is to call them to go to God for salvation. That is your primary purpose and your primary calling above everything else. And if there's anything that you accomplish and that you instill into your children, it must be this. Everything else is inconsequential compared to this reality of your children going to the Lord for salvation. I think often as parents, our worst fear for our children is that they'll sin. And that fear is often only intensified the more we think about the public nature that their sin may carry. How public is it? So as parents, we say, don't do this. Okay, don't do this. And whatever you do, don't do it publicly. Now, you don't say that. I don't say that. But we're not direct, but we're indirect. All right? So, example, actually, last Sunday, driving to church, my wife pointed out to me how I emphasized the need for my children to be obedient much more consistently and seriously when I 
I'm telling them this in the context of a public, okay, so church, <laughs> all right, kids, remember, you are to be obedient. Do not run, right? Be an example. Be well-behaved. I'm not saying these things are bad. But what am I teaching my children? Especially when you consider I'm not emphasizing this at home the way you need. A little more uptight here. Well, what I'm, what I'm saying to them, and look, kids aren't stupid. We think they are, but they're not. What I'm saying is, hey, don't make dad look bad. <laughs> don't make me look bad. <laughs> Behave here. You know, my wife pointing this out to me highlights the reality that so often public perception drives the way we speak. Speak to our children. Why? Well, I live in fear of what others think. We live in fear. We feel there's an image that we must maintain. You know, I, I feel an image to maintain as a pastor, right? And this is deadly for my kids. I'm glad my wife pointed it out. My kids pick on, on it, so do yours. Do you recognize this in your life? like, I've, I've said this, you've said this, why does my child always act up during small group lesson time? <laughs> They're normally so obedient and pleasant, except when I'm in a Bible study, right? And maybe that's true, and that's God's way of humbling, but it's probably not true. You just have a heightened sense to it going on, right? I've done this. Again, I've done this the dreaded walk out of the sanctuary with the toddler. Now, I'm not saying it's a problem. It's not. But what is a problem is us as parents being uptight about it. Oh, I'm failing as a parent. Oh, I can't do that. <laughs> you know, these are the things that we, we think about. As parents... We can live with our son looking at porn here and there. But if he's ever caught with a girl, or we can stomach our child's pride, so long as they attend a college and they have a good-paying job and they do well for themselves. It's good to be disciplined. It's good to be hardworking. It's good to be productive. Parents, we need to be careful how we rank sin's sinfulness. We need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't allow for constructs, images of righteousness to influence how we speak to our children about their sin. We need to be careful that our own pride and our image is not primarily at stake when we feel we must address the sins of our, parent, of our children. You know, one of the great blessings and truly mercies of God is allowing for sin to be public. Now, I know some of you have gone through this. Some of you are going through it right now with your children's sin. It's painful. Yes, it's very difficult. But what a gift it is. It allows for clarity. It leaves no ability or no mirage of a, a plasticky, righteousy life. 
It's out there in the open. And so it's God's goodness to us. There's no image to be maintained. And that's helpful. Now, I want to continue this, but I want to read a parable from Luke that I think helps illustrate this point. It's from Luke 18, um, verse 9. This is Jesus speaking, and I'm going to read it. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, those two things go together, right? Trusting in that you yourself are righteous, and you'll view others with contempt, right? Well, look at that. If you view others with contempt, you're trusting in your righteousness, And so Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Thank you. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes on all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, he says, the sinner, not a sinner, the sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So in this parable, we have two men that are contrasted, the Pharisee and the tax tax collector, a righteous man and a sinner, a proud man and a humble man, a man who thought that he deserved the approval of God And a man who is unwilling even to look up into heaven. A man who is condemned and the other who goes home justified before God. A man who has what he needs and another one who has nothing left to do but to call out for God for salvation. He has nothing. One grew up in a faithful church, attended youth group, winter retreats, served in the church, was well thought of by parents, And the other had none of that. He was an outsider. Are you like this Pharisee or are you like this tax collector? Are you like this Pharisee and you say, thank God I'm not like those other kids at my school. Thank God. Can you imagine if I was like them? I do good things. I serve. Are you like this tax collector? Do you view yourself like he did? First and foremost, a sinner, the sinner. The Pharisee had no need for God because he was righteous. He will not call to God for salvation. Why would he? What does he need from God? On the other hand, the tax collector knows his sin. He's filled with shame. He's humble. He knows he needs God because he knows he's hopeless. 
This leads him to call on the name of the Lord. This refrain of the tax collector must be our refrain. It must be our children's refrain. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. We must see our sinfulness in this way. Our children must see their sinfulness in this way. Only then will they know what it means. Will they have the beginning to understand, I need to call on God. I need help. Parents, you must let your children sin. Now, before you hurl tomatoes at me and call me a heretic, let me explain. Your children will sin. And you need to let them. So that they learn to look to God for help. And what I mean by this, <laughs> you have to be careful that you don't seek to douse your entire life, every square inch of your home and your children's lives with bleach, removing any potential of stain, disease, illness, whatever it is, douse it, cover every corner, and so the threat level of sin is lowered and lowered and lowered until you've reached perfection and happiness and perfect harmony. The concern for your child is not whether or not they'll sin. They will sin. The question needs to be, the concern of our lives should be, will they know to go to God for salvation when they sin? And so if we set up an environment as parents that is as sterile as a surgical operating room and we make sure to leave no room for our, our children to learn to fight their sin and, and go help go to help from God, we're doing them a great disservice. And it's not, it's also not an honest understanding of where sin comes from. You know, to think that we can control and root it out. Sin comes from within. Now, I'm not encouraging sinfulness by saying let your children sin. I hope you understand that. My point is we must teach our children of the wickedness of their hearts. We must teach them the fact that they are a sinner. We must teach our children that their sins and the sins of the homeschool co-op are just and not really all that different than the sins of the public school. You know, there's not much degree of separation between those. There's a great danger if we raise our children with the goal of keeping them completely unstained by the world. As if the threat is out in the world and not in their own hearts. So as youth leaders, <clears throat> I said, these things are often on my mind. We often talk about addressing this in the young people of our church and encouraging them, pushing them. And we've come to sort of as a group call this a, a Christian bubble, the problem of the Christian bubble. Now, what do we mean by a Christian bubble? Well, precisely this, there's a great danger in the youth of our church that thinking the real threats are outside of them and that if we maintain this bubble, Christian bubble, and everything inside is nice and good and pure and everything outside's bad, if you don't pop the bubble, you'll be okay. 
and you'll, you'll glide on in to loving, serving, honoring God. And so we think there's good within that needs to be maintained and that the threats are out there and that we maintain and we protect. One of the goals that we have as youth leaders is to pop this Christian bubble. Now, some of you may have felt the effects of this work, and I hope you're grateful. Maybe not so much. (laughs) It's never easy, but it's an important work, and it's one that we're committed to. And so what we often will warn our youth about is not thinking the sin is out there, but realizing it's in your heart, and that the biggest threat to your not following the Lord is your own heart. The threats are not outside, they're within. The wickedness of our hearts, of our children's heart, is the biggest threat. One of the youth leaders was talking to a group of young men in line with this, and um, they were talking, the kids were, youth, young guys were talking about how they were concerned about the use of foul language in their schools and how they were struggling to maintain purity and speech in these environments. And so the youth leader looked at them and asked them, he said, how many of you call your mom the B word in your head when she's upset with you? You know, and they all, oh. and then, everyone raised their hand. This is what I mean by Christian bubble. You know, we think the sins of our school friends are worse than our own. We think the sins of the world are nastier. And yeah, maybe we commit some of the same sins, but we're not going to do it out loud and openly and brash. It's just going to be in our mind, you know, as if that's any better. Fathers, should it surprise you that Our sons think this way about their mothers. How many of you have thought or said something similar? The sins of the father are passed down. Fathers, you must work to pop this Christian bubble if it's present in your home. Don't seek to live pretending that sin is out there and not within. Don't pretend that terrible and nasty things are not said or thought. They are. Don't confess the sins of America with your families, confess your own personal sins. (laughs) How will we ever teach our children to know the need of God if they don't know the wickedness of our own sin as their father, as their mother? You know? We don't teach them that we have need. And not just sin. (laughs) But do they see you crying out to God Like Elijah, do they see you crying out to God like our passage calls on us for help? Because, look, you don't need to confess your sin to them in one sense. They know your sin. I mean, your children know your sin more than anyone. And so confessing to them is helpful, right? It's helpful, but you must show them your repentance. Your repentance must be on display. You must be speaking to them and demonstrating to them how you are calling out to God and you're in desperate need of Him and that you need Him for salvation. 
You have to do this work. And we must, you have to fight. We need to fight the temptation to keep our sins and the sins of our family confined. And so when I said earlier, let our children sin, I'm not saying we encourage sin. I'm not saying we let sin go and not deal with it. But we not, must not let fear that our children will sin cause us to forget that they are sinners and they will sin. And you can't prevent it. No matter what you do, no matter what methods you employ, what tax you would take, they'll sin, and at times they're going to sin in big ways. It doesn't matter if you put them in a, a classical school, a home school, a public school, a Christian school, inconsequential. They'll sin. It's in their hearts. Their hearts are corrupt. The biggest concern we must be committed to in our homes is will our children turn to God to deal with their sin? Are we promoting and teaching that above every other thing? Will they cry to him for deliverance? And so I want to say, don't set up the environment in your home where the MO is, we don't sin like that. You know? Of course, we're sinners. No one denies it. But remember, this is the, precisely the error the Jews made. Right? They had the law, the prophets. They believed that adherence to a certain lifestyle would save them. You know, it's like the Pharisee we just read about. He had good things. He was different than the tax collector. You know that. He was. But he was proud. And he thought it meant something. And eventually it led him to a point where he did not need, feel the need to cry out to God for salvation. And that is the danger. That is the danger in our lives. That is the danger in our children's lives. If they come to a point where they think, huh, well, it looks good. And if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it is a duck. <laughs> no. You must cry out to God for salvation. They neglected the Jews to look to the Messiah because in their minds they no longer needed one because their lives were basically good. Remember, Jesus says, I came to save the sinners, not the righteous. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the sinners. They thought they were righteous, and so it makes sense. They didn't need Jesus. Why would they look for him? They were righteous in their minds. The righteous do not need salvation, only the sinner. And so let your children sin. <laughs> Don't seek to manufacture plastic saints with an appearance of righteousness. Don't act surprised when your son or daughter confesses a terrible sin to you. But teach them to go to God, to deal with their sin, and help them. Speak to them about your life and your sins. You know, how many of you, you're... you're <laughs> I even see it, you know, my, well, my son is set six, and uh, I already see it. You know, the sins I deal with him, it's like, oh, there I am. You know, again, speaking of God's humor, <laughs> those of you who knew me when I was younger, that was a joke. Um, I see my sin. You know, our children, <laughs> really, the sin of, your sins are passed to them, and so when they come to you, they're going to confess sins you committed. Talk with them about it. Encourage them. Say, hey, I defeated this too. God is faithful. You call on him, he'll save you. He saved me. 
You also need the church to do this. You know, I want to make a point. <clears throat> it's really the, one of the most beautiful things in the strength of a church body is the ways that, you know, iron sharpens iron, that we help one another. And we just took vows for these children, right? Those are real vows. I always, I always like to highlight that with youth. These are vows that we will assist in the raising of children for God. And so we've made commitments to one another. I to your children, you to my children. And praise God, I believe we do have a church that seeks to faithfully uphold these vows. I want to say it's difficult as parents for us to maintain a completely unbiased assessment of our own children. It's hard. Why? Well, they're our kids. And we love them. And they're cute and special. Right? It's natural and good that a parent favors their child. There's nothing wrong with it. But there can also be a trap with this. And there can be harm brought to our children if we never allow for those outside of our home to speak to them, especially to speak hard things. I remember uh, the first thing Nathan Bailey, Pastor Nathan, said to me when Vivian was born, um, our first daughter. And, you know, your first kid, you know, I mean, all of them are great, but the first one, it's like, yeah, it's, oh, yeah. I mean, the cutest, most lovable thing in the world. And I, we were in small group at the time, and I remember bringing Vivian to small group. You're just, you're beaming with pride, you know? You're like uh, Riley and Gabe. Where are you? Yeah, I don't know. They have their newborn here. It's like, it's daughter, you know, beautiful. And I hand her to Nathan, you know, introducing, and he looks at her and he goes, huh, she kind of looks like Gollum. <laughs> uh, you know. I hope you have friends that will say things like that to you. And that's a compliment even still today for Vivian because she watched Lord of the Rings recently and she said, Gollum looks cute, so. <laughs> um, anyways, you know, those, that kind of hurts a little, you know. It's like, ooh, okay. Now, looking back, he was spot on. I mean, I look at the pictures of her and I'm like, yeah, she did. <laughs> you know, and so I don't have that filter of being a new father and over the moon with emotions where when I look back, I'm like, yeah, you know, she, she did. And so I'm saying this simply to highlight that, look, we're precious with our children. And that's the way God has made it. And it's right and it's good. But at the same time, we have to recognize that's why there's a helpfulness in the church and other men and women who will speak to your children because no matter how unbiased, again, you think you are, you're going to be clouded in certain ways. And so it's so helpful. This is why God has ordained the church is to help one another in the areas where we're weak. I'm grateful for my parents, who I don't remember a single time growing up here where they defended me. Now, there wasn't much to defend, but, 
But no, really, I, I don't remember a single time. Anytime a pastor, elder, youth leader, whoever would come and challenge me, whatever it was, they were unequivocally yoked in their commitment, judgment, and the authority of the church. They would not budge an ounce. Now, were there times where the challenges maybe were wrong? Maybe not, probably not 100% wrong, but maybe elements, oh yeah, you know? I mean, when is every, anyone 100% right? But they never challenged me. They never, sorry, defended me. In times, they, you know, some of you know the stories, they allowed for public humiliation, you know? And I'm sure, I, I never knew, I'm sure maybe they didn't, it was hard for them, but I so appreciate that about them. And it was such a help to me. You know, and at the very least, it tempered my pride. It was so helpful. And so I want to say to you, do not defend your kids. You're going to do it. It's your natural knee-jerk reaction. Fight that urge. You will hurt your kids so much if you defend them. So like I said, this is why God's given us the church. It's why God has given us other men and women to speak to us. You know, I think of the, many of you know it, the quote from John Calvin. He says, why didn't, you know, God could have given angels to speak the gospel. He could have ordained that it would come by the mouths of angels. But how, how does the gospel, how does truth come to us? <laughs> Through sinful men. And why? Well, the very least what we can say is, well, boy, oh boy, does it humble you. <laughs> you know, it humbles you. And it's a great gift. And so I encourage you, don't be defensive about your children. I hope you will continue to speak to my children and to their sins, even when it's hard, even when I want to bristle. Please do it. Teach them humility. And so in closing, I want to say I... We need to look to God to keep us from thinking we're something. This church is a blessing. It's been a blessing. God's truth has faithfully been proclaimed for well over 20 years. We're biblical. We're reformed. We're fruitful. Good things. And yet, our one and only refrain must continue and needs to be, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Whatever else there is in this church, that must be the refrain. There have been many different families in the history and the life of this church who have faithfully done this work and have raised children to follow God, and they have done it. We have many examples. And the funny thing to me is, again, growing up, now having a different perspective, the funny thing to me is there are really an infinite combination of tax approaches, methods. And honestly, with a lot of the families that I see doing it incredibly well, there's a lot of things I can't, I can't commend you and say, do this. You know, it's not, I wouldn't even recommend it. You understand? And so, but what is there is a teaching of humility and love for the word of God 
and that you need to look to God. Don't look to me as your father. Don't look to your mother. Look to God. That's the consistent thing I see, and also men and women that will have other authorities in their lives other than them. You know, that's that humility. And so I only say that to just say, look, we want to talk all day and long about things and methods, and, and really, it is truly inconsequential compared with teaching them to cry to God, their desperate need for their Lord and Savior. And so I want to leave us with this question, have you, will you call on the name of the Lord? Are you teaching this in your families? Are you exemplifying this by your example, your neediness for God, your desire for God to be magnified and for you to be lowered? We must be committed to this truth. Let's pray.